In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. In the summer of 1878, yellow fever came to the city of New Orleans. And in several weeks' time, it made its way up the Mississippi, hitting each city that it came to until it arrived in Memphis. Memphis at that time was a small township of about 40,000 people and considered, you know, part of the western United States. It only took two months for yellow fever to claim 5,000 people in the city. Uh, 20,000 of them fled, so there were only half of them left. They were finding people uh, dead in the streets and in the parks every morning over this two-month period of time. To get a sense of how many people 5,000 is, uh, that means that uh, 12 to 13 percent of the population in two months died. That would be like in the state of Nevada if we lost 375,000 people in two months. We've only had 6,000 people die in 18 months from coronavirus. Uh, many of those uh, who uh, elderly that uh, were expected to not live throughout the year uh, disclaimed babies and nursing mothers and did so in just two months' time. It ravaged the city. There was a small Episcopal Anglican parish there called St. Mary's, and uh, the two priests of the parish decided to stay in the city uh, despite the warnings to evacuate. Indeed, many of the police and fire left. There were only seven of the original 40 at the end of those two months who were still in the city. The sisters who had been appointed to St. Mary's but had gone back that summer to visit their mother house in New York heard of the news and their response was to get to Memphis as quick as they could. So while thousands were fleeing the city, Constance and her companions went to the city in order to care for the people that needed them. Indeed, their primary care was for orphans, as they would go into houses and they would find babies left unattended because their parents had died in the middle of the night. And they would take these children out of their homes and take them into houses, and indeed many times had to stand in front of angry mobs who were threatening them for bringing the children into the city. Uh, people didn't know how yellow fever was uh, being contracted. It was over 20 years later when Walter Reed discovered that it was transmitted by mosquitoes. How did those ladies, with such boldness, go into a city like that? How were they able to uh, sacrifice their lives in love, fulfilling the commandments of God to love him and their neighbor? It came from practicing the commandments. And this is exactly what Moses is telling the people of God to do in Deuteronomy. You remember that Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. That's what Deutero means, the second time the law had been given. Of course, we read about it in Exodus when the people leave, but now he is retelling them everything that he had told them before as they're about to enter into the promised land. So you remember that the whole uh, group, the whole generation that had left Egypt had died in those 40 years in the wilderness. Indeed, there's only two of them that are allowed to enter, Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else, including Moses, are not allowed to enter in because of their lack of obedience to God. 
Moses stands up on a hillside as he overlooks the Jordan River Valley and Jericho and into the promised land. And in his humility and his incredible humility to God, knowing that he's not allowed to go in, he still stands and summarizes for the people what it is that they're called to do. He tells them that their duty is to learn the commandments of God and then to do them. Imagine that. Sometimes we start to think that knowing the commandments of God is enough. If I just know what they are, I've done my part. Or maybe if I know what they are and I tell other people about them, that's enough. Or maybe if I know what they are and I point out how other people aren't following them, that's enough. Or I'm willing to criticize somebody publicly, that's enough. But Moses clearly says three times in this short passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says that you need to learn them and do them that you may live. The consequence of doing the commandments of God is life. The consequence of not following the commandments of God is death. That's what lays out here in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Three times he says do them. Here in the very first verse that we have, verse number 1, He says it again uh, down in verse 5. He says, I have taught you the rules, the commandments of God, that you should do them in the land that you're going to possess. And then again in verse 6, he says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding. So he's saying you have to do these commandments. You have to practice them. And he tells them that they have to do it diligently and carefully. He says, take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget. When we keep the commandments of God diligently, that means that we're doing it every day on purpose. That's what it means to be diligent. When we're diligent about something, if we're diligent about our house cleaning or about our homework or about um, any other thing that we do throughout the week, uh, when we're carefully, diligently doing something, that means that we've got a plan every day in place when we can do these things. What the Lord is calling us to do is to have a plan in place every day where we do the things of God. These aren't commandments where we say, I've got to watch out and not do something. These are commandments where the Lord is saying, be careful to love me and love your neighbor. So we have to have a careful plan in place where we are always thinking about and preparing for the things of God. How am I going to be courageous? How am I going to claim the gospel? How am I going to be ready to sacrifice my life? How am I going to respond when I get a call that somebody's in need and it's up to me to go and respond uh, in order to serve them? To be ready always for that. And what we see here is that he's warning us that we can forget and depart from the ways of God. And indeed, we see this all the time. We see Christians who at one time had been diligent for something in their life they start thinking oh I don't need to do that anymore there's so much grace covering me I don't need to be in my daily prayers I don't need to read my Bible you see every person that makes that decision stop going to church stop keeping the commandments of God and they fall into a dissipated lifestyle over and over again we see that people think that they don't have to be careful about keeping the commandments of God and they end up not being careful about anything of the ways of God And what Moses tells us is the first thing we have to do is do these things and then we're able to teach them. 
See, he's understanding what it means to teach. And sometimes we start to think that we can teach something without doing it. And that's really not teaching at all. We've all had, I hope, the experience of being taught something well. When we're taught to do something well, we're taught in the manner of discipleship. When we disciple somebody, it looks a little bit like learning a trade. When an apprentice comes into a trade, he watches the master do his work. And then as he's invited to watch the master, he's, enjoy- he's invited to participate. He might hand a tool or he might hold a flashlight or he might be carrying provisions. And then slowly the master starts allowing the apprentice to do some of the work. And then the master watches the apprentice do the work that he is doing. And finally, then the master stands back as the apprentice does it and he's able to evaluate the work that the apprentice is doing. This is how we're taught to keep the commandments of God. We're invited to do them and invite other people to watch us do the things of God. We're supposed to be saying, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to look for uh, the opportunities that I have to sacrifice, to proclaim the gospel of the Lord, to, to see those that are in need, to love my neighbor fully. Watch me do these things. And then as I do them, I'm going to invite you to come and participate with me. This is how we teach the things of God. And of course, this is another way that we have not been careful in the church, and we have allowed the teaching of the Lord and the teaching of the gospel become very sloppy and slovenly, and we haven't shown people how to be Christians in the church. Because we first have to do the things of God. And the confusion that can come in doing this and and, and living the commandments of God is that we can start thinking that, uh, again, that it's looking like what we're supposed to be doing, that it's looking separate that matters. And that's what's happened to the Pharisees of the time of Christ. This is 1,500 years now after Deuteronomy that we read here in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. It's been 1,500 years since they've entered into the Promised Land, and a lot of, of things have happened to the nation of Israel, but the condition that we see them in now is that they're thinking that the way that they look to others is what counts. Again, the same kind of trap that we fall into. That it's just if we look like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, not if we're actually doing it. They'd gotten into the trap of looking like they were keeping the commandments of God. And one of the ways that looking like they were keeping it was this uh, hand-washing ritual that they had gotten into that was so important to them because it was an outward sign of nothing. It wasn't an outward sign of an inward grace. It was simply an outward sign that I'm participating in this Jewish ritual. And I don't know about you, but I read these hand-washing rituals that they had at the time of Christ, and I think, amateurs. They didn't know anything about ritual washing, right? We have gone so far beyond what they do, right? You read, they wash when they come home from the marketplace. We wash three times. Right? We wash our hands when we get home, and then we make sure that we wash the food, and then we make sure we wash it and we put it in the fridge, and then we wash it when we get back out. Right? We might wash three or four times. Right? And we talk about it with each other, right? The careful ways in which I'm washing, the careful ways in which I'm protecting myself, the careful ways in which I'm, I'm keeping clean, right? And we, we virtue signal to each other. Look at the clean way that I'm keeping. Look at the clean things that I'm doing. Right? As if these are the ways that God is calling us to be uh, servants of Him. And so they become so confused about uh, this cleanliness, so confused about these rituals that they were signaling to others and there was nothing behind it. 
They did the same thing when it comes to giving things to the Lord and their, uh, their uh, employment of wealth and how it was that they were supposed to use the good things that God had given them. You see this tradition of Korban. What they would do is they would give money to the temple and then any money that they had given to the temple they weren't allowed to use for anything else. It was a way of promising money to the temple and thinking that that would keep them from their duties to care for their family. And of course we all know that um, anyone that doesn't care for their family first is worse than an unbeliever. So they had undercut the commandments of God in order to look like they were doing what they were supposed to do. And God's desire that we see from Deuteronomy to Mark's gospel is that he would live with us in a kind of a radical, indwelling, intimate way. So that the way that we keep the commandments of God are not an outward showing but they come from an inner place of a desire to live and to do the things of God. So we are now in chapter 7. You'll remember though that we were in chapter 6 where we read about the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus crossing over the Sea of Galilee and explaining what it meant that, that he had fed them and that he wanted to feed them with his body and blood. And then we spent four weeks going to John's Gospel and this discourse on the bread of life, right? We've spent four weeks talking about and really going into what this means that we are eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Talk about unclean. Because of his desire to have such an intimate relationship with us, his desire to, to, to dwell with us in this intimate and powerful way to change not our exterior, but to change the interior state of our hearts and minds. See, when we recognize the, the, the power of God and His holiness, the call that we have is to repent and be baptized. And that washing and baptism isn't an exterior sign. We're not saying, oh, now that person is clean on the outside. We're allowing that out, outside, exterior sign of washing, recognizing that there is an interior spiritual grace washing of the mind and the spirit so that our desires would be for the things of God this is the transformation that Jesus has taught we're not exterior washing we are washing the interior with the blood of Christ we're washing the ways that the mind works and the ways that the heart works so that what comes out of us what happens when I hit your finger with a hammer right what's gonna come out of your mouth under those kinds of extreme moments of difficulty right what's really in our hearts and in our minds and Jesus says this is what defiles us those things that come out of us that are these kind of natural responses to temptation to danger to fear we see what happens when we're in desperate fear. We go for uh, safety of the body. We go to protect ourselves. We go to feed ourselves, right? We eat and we seek physical intimacy with others. And this is why Jesus put sexual immorality at the very start, because this is the most powerful aspect of our human person, right? The most powerful force that we have as human beings is that power to join with God in procreation, right? To make new people. Nothing is more powerful, and nothing is also more dangerous, more prone to disease, and more powerful to break up families and homes and even societies because of our sexual immorality. 
And so he's saying that when these are the things that are coming out of us, we're going to become distorted and twisted away from the things of God if we're not careful to align our hearts and minds with the commandments of God. And so he practices and promises an interior washing where our hearts and minds are set right. So how do we participate with that? Because, as you all know, at least for me, when I was baptized, I didn't just immediately start thinking completely the things of God, right? There's a process that we call deification, a process of coming more and more into the body of Christ, into the mind of Christ. And St. Paul, for us, is introducing here at the very end of Ephesians chapter 6. We've been reading through Ephesians now for weeks and weeks, and Paul is concluding his beautiful letter here in chapter 6, and he's summarizing the things that we need to do in order to be prepared to walk in those ways of God, to allow our minds and our hearts to be changed towards the things of God. And he, he uses this metaphor of the soldier. He uses this metaphor of a soldier being diligent and preparing for battle. A soldier doesn't just wander into battle, right? A good soldier prepares for battle, recognizes the danger that is at hand, recognizes the sacrifice that's going to need to be made, and prepares for it. And he uses these images of the helmet and of the breastplate and of the shield and of the sword and of the proper shoes, right? The protection, the girding of oneself as the way that we're supposed to be uh, going out of our doors every morning, right? As Frodo Baggins said, be careful when you walk out your door, right? We've got to be careful in the way that we walk out of our doors. We've got to know that there are dangers in the world, that there are going to be temptations. We can't walk out of our doors and not know that we're going to be tempted for slander, that we're going to be tempted for theft. We can't afford to be that naive as Christians. We have to know that there are going to be temptations in the world, and we have to arm ourselves with the righteousness of God. So how do we do that? St. Paul says we have to daily be in the Word of God, we have to be reflecting and learning and understanding the Word of God, and we have to be daily submitting ourselves in prayer. And the kind of prayer that he's talking about here isn't Howard's top ten list of things that I want, right? Sometimes we pray thinking it's like a list of Santa Claus. This isn't the kind of prayer that we're talking about at all. This is an intercessory prayer for the needs of the saints, that is, those that have committed themselves to the ways of God. We are committed to one another. We are committed to pray for one another. If we're going to be the body of Christ here, we have committed to pray for one another. And we've committed that we are going to allow the Spirit to pray through us. So now I'm not just praying my prayers or my ideas for what you all need. I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to pray through me. And that requires the kind of humility that we see only a few times in Scripture, maybe, from people like Moses, when we're willing to say, Okay, Lord, your will. And we're able to be quiet enough to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us. To be patient and quiet enough to allow the Lord to speak His will for His people. Well, Constance and her companions died of yellow fever. Both the priests that stayed died. Several days before Constance died, the mother superior in New York said, I want to send more sisters to serve. And Constance's reply was, send them, but make sure that they know that they are giving their lives for Christ. There was no room for naivete. 
no room but to know that they were sacrificing themselves to go for the people in need in Memphis. How did they do that? Because that wasn't the first day they were willing to give something up for Christ. That wasn't the first day of sacrifice for them. They had given up their homes and their families. They had given up their money. They had given up their personal property. They had been sacrificing daily their own lives to submit to the order of prayer so that when it was time to go to Memphis, what did they have left to give but their lives? Because they had practiced. And because of their practice and their doing, they taught us. So that when we talk about Memphis, we don't talk about tragedy. We talk about the hope and the measure of love that was given by those in St. Mary's Parish. And they teach us even today.